0: Welcome to the CIO Evolution. In this podcast, we'll explore the Chief Information Officer's role in executing a new ongoing leadership imperative digital transformation that promotes agility and resilience. How do CIOs upgrade legacy networks? What are the financial challenges CIOs face? And what are the security measures that are required in the new work from anywhere mobile and cloud based world?
1: Welcome to the CIO Evolution one of three podcast shows available on CXO Revolutionaries, sponsored by Zscaler. I'm your host, Chris Jablonski, Director of CXO Revolutionaries and Community. Ever since the Colonial Pipeline cyber attack in 2021, there's been more attention and effort placed on securing our nation's critical infrastructure. To get a sense of progress, we recently held a panel discussion with Federal Chief Information Security Officer and Deputy National Cyber Director, Chris Derusha, and former CIO for the State of Wisconsin, David Kajigal. The panel was moderated by Kavitha Mariupan, Executive Vice President of Customer Experience and Transformation at Zscaler. Take a comfortable seat and enjoy the recording of this important industry briefing and learn what it will take in terms of collaboration, information sharing, resource optimization, and more to defend our nation's assets for the collective good.
2: I'm Kavita Mariupan, Executive Vice President of Customer Experience and Transformation at Zscaler. Today, we are honored to be joined by two leading uh, executive voices in the public sector. Chris Derusha, the Federal Chief Information Security Officer in the Office of Management and Budget, EOMB, and David Cadigal, the former state of Wisconsin chief information officer. Over the next 45 minutes, we will discuss, and I hope debate, arguably the most important cybersecurity topic as it affects us all, critical infrastructure. Uh, We're really looking forward to your participation in today's conversation. So please do add your questions and comments in the comments field, and we will do our very, very best to answer as many questions as possible. So. Let's get this um, uh, uh, LinkedIn Live moving along. Gentlemen, welcome, and good morning. Good afternoon.
1: Good afternoon.
2: Fantastic to have you both here. So I wanted to kind of set the stage and and potentially, you know, really start with the public cybersecurity state of union. Let's kind of lay the foundation and the framework for our conversation today. Um, And Chris, I'm going to kind of cue you up and start with you a little bit. Um, you know, defending critical infrastructure is notably the first pillar in um, the Biden administration's national cybersecurity strategy. But uh, there are a lot, we've seen a lot of cyber threats around today. I mean, as you know, it's prolific, it's robust, it's everywhere. Um, Why is cybersecurity such a priority for this administration in general, and uh, specifically around protecting critical infrastructure?
3: Yeah, well, that's a great question, to Then And first of all, just again, thank you for for having me here today. Um, look, we got a great opportunity a few months ago uh, to put out our national cyber strategy, and as you note, you know, there's a huge focus. First pillar um, is critical infrastructure. And look, it's you know it's simple, right? Uh, we're in the digital age, and you know, this technology that we're all relying on uh, kind of underpins every aspect of our lives. You know, if you look at functioning of our economy, um, operation of uh, infrastructure, delivery of key services to state, local levels, um, even you could say in elections. You know, we're talking about the underpinnings of our democracy and our institutions. So, you know, it's, it's it's really it's it's everything. Um, and the president articulated a clear vision earlier this year of you know, where, where we're gonna head. And I think what, what is foundational there is there's a couple of pillars to that, um, right? Like the first shift that we need to make and ensure that we're focusing on is that the most capable organizations here, the ones with the most resources, really need to start assuming a greater share of the burden for addressing and mitigating this risk. Um, we can't continue on in a model where the burden of you know, good cybersecurity can continue to fall on the consumer, on small businesses, and sort of those with the least resources. And so that's like a big, you know, vision shift for us. And it it means we have a huge role too, to lead by example, because the US government is one of those most resourced. Um, And the second sort of foundational underpinning of the strategy is that we've really got to be prioritizing increasing incentive structures for long-term investments. In resilient infrastructure and you know cybersecurity, secure by design principles, uh, and all of the software products we're putting out, right? So we've been working on that for a couple of years since the administration started. But you know, we're talking about um, needing to go bigger and continue on that path. And and you know, back to my role as the federal chief information security officer, sitting over all the federal agencies, <clears throat> you know, I've got a big role to play here. Um, because at the end of the day, you know we own a lot of the critical infrastructure ourselves at the federal level, um, or a significant portion. And we've got to ensure that we're starting here and leading by example by really kind of um, ensuring resilient design in all of our systems. And we've made big investments in um, modern security uh, architecture changes and zero trust. We've also uh, are making big investments through our technology modernization funding. Modernizing uh, legacy and old IT. So, you know, I think that the the short of it is uh, there's lots to do across the entire nation, and you know, we're both leading that effort, but also leading by example.
2: I mean, it's it's great to see. I mean, first and foremost, I think it's it's you know, it's confidence building to know that this is such a critical agenda item for the administration and kind of all the affiliated agencies, and and how that has an impact across state and local government. Um, entities as well. Um, I think it, it'll be interesting. Also, Chris, in, in and and then in, in a second, you know, I've got some questions for for David as well. Uh, let's define critical infrastructure at the federal level, real quick. You know, from your perspective, I mean, as as you touched upon, you know, there are implications that are far and wide-reaching, right? That's you know, national, international safety. There's you know, uh, impact around kind of our geopolitics, our economy and, you know, loss of human life. I mean, it just, it transcends everything. Other people cannot grasp what critical critical infrastructure really means unless it, until we see kind of, it truly defined and how we are at various states of digitization or exposure of said critical infrastructure um, today um, here in the United States, as well as, you know, uh, across many of, the, of of the nations across the world. Uh, that we, um, we trade with, we, you know, keep peace, you know, in the the world with, right, and, and, and all of the above. So it'd be really great to hear from you what, what from, from, you know, from a federal um, perspective, federal government perspective, um, you define as critical infrastructure specifically. Yeah,
3: for sure. Well, you know, uh, DHS, um, CISA has defined 16 uh, different critical infrastructure sectors. So, you know, that's, Kind of a a runs the gambit from anywhere from financial, um, you know, oil and gas, transportation. Kind of there's 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 a broad cross section, and how we manage that is, you know, we we try to pair expertise of a lead agency, which many cases is DHS, um, with the expertise of a sector specific agency or sector risk management agency, as we like to call them. So for example. Uh, you know, I have Department of Treasury and Homeland Security. will partner together and work with, you know, the Financial Services ISAC as kind of one ecosystem. Um, and and you find the same like healthcare and energy kind of go across. Like, you know, we've got each of those uh, agencies providing deep expertise in understanding their industry, which is really important. We're talking about particular uh, OT getting out of IT and getting like how does the OT work in certain spaces? You know, that's that can be really tricky and not well understood. Um, so you, you kind of have to have, uh, and, and there's just different types of regulations involved in each industry, et cetera. So, you know, that's kind of how we manage it, but, but it's a but it's a huge cross section of, uh, uh, you know, that, that we tag as critical structure uh, here in the United States.
2: Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, David, moving on to you a little bit, um, perhaps, you know, if you can kind of help you know, illustrate, you know, to our audience uh, what it means um, to be a security leader at a state level, and also kind of what were some of the challenges in your day-to-day job in terms of securing critical infrastructure from that perspective, from a cyber perspective. Um, that will be one part of my question. Obviously, the next part of my question is going to be, did you, did you feel well resourced to do what you needed to do?
4: Uh, thank you for the question, uh, Kavita. I'd be remiss if I didn't thank Chris and the state of, of Michigan. Uh, we, we stand on their shoulders. They, they were very innovative in, in all facets of cybersecurity, uh, David Behan and Dan Lorman and Chris himself. And, and that's, uh, that was, a, I think, a classic example of information sharing. Those two states were joined at the hip, and we learned so much because our TAG, our, our uh, adjutant general, had a rapport with the Adjutant General from Michigan. He brought the two CIOs together, brought the CISOs together, and we just continued to leverage uh, all all that Michigan was pioneering in the spirit of of cybersecurity. So uh, many thanks. We stole shamelessly from Michigan. We were able to do a lot of things that uh, had made Wisconsin uh, much more stronger in cyber defense. So get on with your question, Kavita. Uh, at the state level, uh, we we might want to consider somewhat of a mirroring effect because we had a, a Department of uh, of uh, Health Services, much like the Department of uh, Health Services. And federal level, uh, we had PSC, Public Service Commission, regulating our utilities, our natural gas, our water. Uh, so there are uh, state agencies that very much look like the federal agencies but drilling down more specifically the the specific demographics of a state, the challenges. As you know, uh, Wisconsin sits in the middle of the country, so we don't have coastal uh, issues to deal with. We don't have a lot of uh, of, uh, hurricanes, et cetera, et cetera. So our our challenges are a bit different in the Midwest, but uh, they they remain the same. Uh, Our critical infrastructure can be just as as damaging uh, from a physical event or from a cyber event that require, requires us to respond. And uh, when I first became uh, involved with the National Guard and in the incident response planning effort, we had to identify the fact that we needed partnerships at the federal level and at the state level in multiple agencies. I think Chris would understand that not all agencies are ready to communicate across each other. So they're, they're basically uh, charged with the responsibilities for the particular discipline But as CIOs and CISOs, we transcend that. Uh, We we don't respect those boundaries, so to speak, but we need to bring them together in a collaborative manner to say that we're all in this together. If you think about it just for a second, we are enjoying the critical infrastructure as we speak. We've got broadband connections. We've got uh, computers that are networked. We've got a segment of the infrastructure helping us deliver this message today on the backbone of the critical infrastructure. And I might add, we'll talk about this a little bit later, Later, but we we might want to add the elections to the government facilities. There was talk about making it number 17, but I think they embedded it into one of the 16 government facilities, and that's where it resides today. Uh, there was a, a tremendous amount of effort there expended in 16 election, 20, 2018, 2020, every two years, not just the presidential elections. But uh, uh, on a resource basis, uh, we, we you know Chris and I plead every day that we really don't have enough money, we really don't have enough resources. And it's, a, it's an argument that will continue today and tomorrow as the technology trends uh, increase upward, uh, the cybersecurity threats travel with that trend line. So as we are investing in technologies, whether it be people or sensors, uh, it introduces a significant amount of vulnerabilities that we have to be prepared to address. So uh, we'll talk about more about this more later, but we, we, Chris and I are in a regulatory manner. You know, we, we don't own the resources. We don't have boots on the ground at every sensor at every station ensuring that it operates, but we regulate and we try to provide a greater degree of context of the importance of the infrastructure. If you're a consumer or if you're a CEO of, a, of an organization, you depend on the critical infrastructure of this country.
2: Thank you for that, David. I I think, you know, as a a common citizen, I know, listening to both of you, right, sort of, Chris, you setting the stage for what it looks like from an agency level at the federal level, David, you unpacking that at state, local government level, I feel like we're in the matrix. Um, There is so many layers to this, so many handoffs, um, protocols, and, you know, one, one, you know, it begs the question of ownership of critical infrastructure, um, you know, funding. Uh, the technical debt, the the process debt, and the skills debt. You know, in terms of you know dealing with some of this. So let's you know, I wanted to kind of move to the inc- One of the you know most recent incidents that really brought to light this this scenario. I mean, many many we've had many incidents, cyber incidents, but uh, let's talk about the Colonial Pipeline attack. Um, you know, not sure if it was because we were all kind of um, you know in, in, in shelter in place. At that time, and and you know everybody was in front of a screen, and we were able to witness this. Not not sure if the act, you know, the the, the cyber act was you know critically nefarious, um, more than anything else, had been. But whatever it was, it brought to bear really exposed it to you know. I think not just to folks involved, you know, at the government level, but to a common citizen that hey, this can happen to us, and it could shut us down. Uh, And everybody kind of started to pay attention to what cyber attacks were and, um, you know, what it was, I think, a real inflection point for all of us. Right. So, you know, how how does the federal government and the state local government kind of interplay, you know, in in, in kind of dealing with this? Because I want to start with you. It was an inflection point. Um, Was this an inflection point or is it just, you know, our interpretation of it? Um, in terms of critical infrastructure protection?
3: Well, look, it was certainly a, a key event uh, there. I mean, there's no question about it. Um, you, you, know, you, you brought in a whole cross-section of stakeholders, uh, you know, people just trying to fill a gas tank into the equation, feeling feeling one of these events, you know, we as professionals, three of us feel these events kind of maybe daily. Uh, but you know, I think that, that that really did matter um, for a lot of reasons, and you know, I and I think it also kind of kickstarted some really important questions for us the administration, right? Which is, you know, hey, you know, we've got a lot of limited authorities. We've had a largely voluntary approach over the past decade towards working with critical infrastructure. Certain segments have been regulated more than others. But it's not consistent across those 16 sectors, right? And, and there's uh you know some work to do there. And so despite of all of that progress that we've made, which we definitely have seen progress through the voluntary approaches and all the operational collaboration between federal, state, and critical infrastructure owners, operators, I mean, no question, like we've 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 moved forward. But it's not sufficient, it's not sufficiently resilient to ensure and say that we can ensure our national security and public safety. And and you learn that. In moments like these, um, in, when these disruptions occur, and so what are we going to do about that? You know, we well, we have an answer, right? Um, we outlined it in the strategy, but you know, we really need minimum cybersecurity requirements for critical infrastructure. And I think that how you do that, you need to be you know cautious in that. Um, this is going to be a close partnership to move forward with the private sector and municipal owners and operators of the infrastructure. But there are a few principles, um, you know, for, for a framework that, you know, could lead to some new regulations. I mean, and you am know, happy to outline them if that's helpful. You know, the, the first is that uh, regulation should have the lightest touch possible, but no lighter. Uh, second, baseline regulations need to be harmonized with existing requirements that these sectors already face. You know, we've got to reduce duplication of rules and assessments. And I think there's opportunity as we create new to to harmonize and to get rid of, you know, old. Um, Third, baseline regulations need to be developed collaboratively with industry so that they're cost aware, that they're based on sound risk management principles, uh, and they're actually going to get the outcomes that we're seeking. And and last, you know, the proof of compliance with harmonized baseline requirements will be reciprocated across regulators with jurisdiction over companies, um, so that you know we can have a world where the company needs to demonstrate compliance once. And look, I mean, I don't think you'd hear any of us say that those principles will be easy to mm-hmm. achieve. But what we're saying is uh, we've got to we've got to do something new and different. Um, we got to do it with the folks who are running the, the infrastructure. You know, to get it right, <laughs> and and we're going to do that. You know, and, and and I think that is that is a new tone, but you know, we're trying to set it uh, out of the gate, you know, collaboratively and also sort of making sure that people really understand we're serious about harmonization. So one of the things that we did recently is we actually released uh, an RFI on regulatory harm uh, harmonization, and you know, we're going to be getting a lot of feedback on that. Where we're quite sure, uh, you know, in, in in a couple of months, and we're looking forward to really deeply going through that and, and, and learning how we do this in the right
2: way. Well, I mean, I think directionally, this is, this is, this is spot on, right? Recognition and, and, and sort of a bias for action and a sense of urgency and, and putting some, some frameworks around what needs to be done and, and driving that through kind of some form of a, you know, regulatory mandate. I think that's, it's all directionally, you no know, awesome. Uh, but and I wanted to open this up to both of you on that, on that note, right? It, it Part of this is ownership of critical infrastructure. There are some statistics that have been bandied around saying, well, you know, 85% of the United States critical infrastructure is privately owned. We also question these stats, whatever it is, I think if it's not the 50%, it's a question to be answered. How do we you know being identified let's let me just take a, an example of a utility company right we recognize you know the infamous utility company here in the state of california um as i as i live here in napa i brace myself for fires all the time in the summer months um and uh with that utility for example but let's just take that and and say okay um there there is you know you you Power and electric, you know, gas is recognized to be a critical infrastructure. Thus, they are, you know, bound by certain uh, regulatory requirements. Let's talk about enforcement of of that at, you know, not just at the federal level, but at the state level. I know David, with you weighing in as well. Um, how do you enforce that they are they are audited and they are at the, you know, they're moving forward, right, with digitizing and. With putting the right sort of you know uh, safety measurements, whether with be it physical as well as um, cyber, um, you know, security measures in place, and and what what does that time frame look like? I'm just kind of throwing a hypothetical example out there, but just saying, if we use ownership and identification and enforcement as a as levers, um, how do we enforce these? Not a crystal ball question. Just whatever you can answer. I would love to hear from you know David, maybe from the state level, and then uh, Chris from a federal level.
4: You you want me to go first?
2: Sure.
4: I I can. Uh, you know, I was a CIO for a utility, natural gas, and electric from 2004 to 2011, and we went through FERC audits. And uh, the focus back then, before cybersecurity, was terrorism, physical assaults. And we had to pass those audits, and they were frequent, and there were million-dollar-a-day million penalties associated with anything that, they, that we failed to do, very costly. Uh, we, we feared those penalties, so therefore we, we got an early read on what the audits were going to be about, the scope and breadth of them, and to make sure that we were uh, capable of passing the audits. And they were frequent. And uh, so, you know, all hands on deck when, when we had an audit scheduled from, from a FERC organization coming in it was uh, it was a, it was a, a tightly run uh, utility and that's one of utilities across the, the states that they were all being audited for the same reasons and now add you know after I've left now add the, 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 the cybersecurity layer to that uh, to me that's even more complicated one of the challenges they have is, is being able to understand the differences between OT and IT uh, IT is uh, somewhat traditional decades of protection Ot has been uh, somewhat um, very resilient, but not under attack. And uh, the, the control room within a facility is uh, well protected, but the cybersecurity threat has increased enormously because they're connected to the network. They're not supposed to be connected to the network, but somehow uh, a vendor may come in and plug into, uh, you know, they phone home and they do their diagnostics and it's, it's open for a little bit, but uh, they cannot afford to have anything happen on the OT side considering all the sensors, not so much the people, but the sensors that run a a power plant or any manufacturing plant, all sensors are vulnerable if they're connected to a network. So uh, from a a regulated utility point of view, uh, the federal organization and the Public Service Commission, if they're not investing uh, accordingly, uh, they're not gonna get their rate increases. You know, and, and one of the things that that uh, the uh, tag that the adjutant general and I we we pleaded with the public service commission to bring the utilities in one by one by one, and uh, that was an easy ask, and, and uh, they did, and they had a test to the fact that you know what are their uh, cyber risk, their cyber uh, security uh, plans, what are their incident plans look like, what does recovery look like. Uh, so they brought that through us, and and I'm hoping that they continue on with that uh, that uh, analysis of the utilities, both natural gas and and uh, and power. Uh, Chris, I'll turn that over to you.
3: Yeah, I mean, just picking up, you know, the state level first, really quick. You know, as the you know as chief security officer of Michigan, um, very similar story, right? Where we were working together as a team with our adjutant general, with Michigan State Police, state CIO, state CSO, and and, and we had a lot of collaborative relationships with different critical infrastructure um, entities. And in part, we, we even had like for healthcare, we had a healthcare council that we sat on, You know, and I would kind of participate in those meetings and their, their, their direction as a sector in the state. Um, there's a lot of regional fabric that you can work together on too, right? To kind of, there's you know, a lot of common dependencies that they all have, um, and they all have to kind of work with the governor and um, governors, various senior officials. So, I mean, I think, you know, the eco, the ecosystems and states are very, very important, you know, but then you, you do have the federal layer where you have various regulated um uh sectors. I think like one, one that is probably most top of mind for you know, like what, what can you do to enforce like like how can you go about that? Um is, is go back to colonial uh, pipeline examples. You talk, you look at what TSA did um with their uh, uh, pipeline directives that, that they put out and you know, I mean, these, uh, I, mean, I the first thing to note about them is they've had to be updated. And I mean, I think, but that's okay, right? I mean, they you know, started 21, 22, 23, and there's been a lot of feedback as they became very real to the folks who had to comply with them, um, you know, federal government's been listening and working to get that right. And again, that's the lesson we need to pass everywhere so that we're not learning in pockets that like what TSA has done here, we will take as learnings to, you know, inform, you um, you know, all, all sectors, right? That's that's the mentality that we want to push for and need. But a lot of it's is is largely kind of what Dave's talking about. Um, where you are you're, you're forcing accountability, right? Where they have to submit um their plans for, for review and approval, like their cybersecurity assessment plans, um, uh, how they're going to ensure that they're following the right practices. They've got to give the results of those um, assessments up, um and 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 kind of get the uh uh, just assurance from, you know, the federal government um, that they're you know, testing for the right things, that they're putting plans of action milestones behind the, the, the things that they've found in those assessments. Um, recovery plans, David mentioned, uh, incident response plans, just ensuring that they're they're testing for those things. I mean, I, I think the real thing here, though, is you, you you have to find a way to ensure that it's not a compliance exercise or thought of as compliance exercise, right? Because then yeah. you're done with the water, right? Like yeah. it, Right. It's 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 it people need to understand you you really want to actually test your recovery plan, you know, because you're you're really going to kick yourself when you're in it if you didn't. And, mitigation, and that's the culture change, right? Kind of the, it's like the culture change that, you're, that we're trying to work on here and not just make these new requirements, but make them sort of part of functional business operations.
2: Right. No, it makes so much sense. I mean, I think the notion of you know separating risk management from true security, right? I mean, if we really think about kind of security compliance um and then risk management rather than saying, you know, my my security strategy is all about compliance and audit. That doesn't work, right? Like you said, you're a DOA at that point. And what do you what 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 is every entity doing in terms of ensuring that you're truly looking at your risk mitigation uh, from a, you know, an operational and a technology and a process perspective, right? We um, I was talking to, a, a, a you know, a CISO recently who said, you know, I my, my entire team spends more time on audits than we do. We have to go back and actually put the right tech in place. You know, we bought a bunch of stuff two years ago. We haven't rolled it out because the whole team stretched in. Looking at identity management solutions, and we're looking at you know dealing with audit, and then there's the additional headache of obviously our cyber insurance that we're dealing with, which is another another list of you know audits, right? So if we really think about kind of uh, how are we handling risk, you know, truly assessing risk, so that so that goes to kind of my next um, you know kind of pivot. And David, you also mentioned uh, I, I, Kavita, I yeah, Kavita,
4: sure. before you move on, just to add it to this topic. Uh, Chris said something very important that we're not walking through these exercises blindly. We, We are sincerely committed to the success of these exercises, making sure that they are designed to address the situation. There are situations in which a utility is going to be impacted physically or by cyber. There's a transfer of control to either law enforcement or the military, depending on the degree of the attack. Now, understanding all that, One-off, we're very successful. But if there are multiple attacks in multiple cities, in multiple countries, do we have the resources to be able to exponentially address these issues? So that's something that comes at the tail end of an exercise. We're good. We We satisfied the requirement of the plan for this organization, for this utility, for this incident. But what if there are multiple incidences? That is a deep concern for all of us. And in fact, all of us are are really lacking in the cyber professionals that we really need at all levels, federal, state, and local government. I didn't want to lose that train of thought.
2: To be no, honest. no, I think, I think that's that's spot on. I think, you know, it, it kind of ties up what we all said. We would rather be dealing, not be dealing with an incident, right? I would rather an incident be a non-event. And, and it's good to have all these, you know, you're doing all the tabletops, you're putting the protocol in place, you're having all the handoffs, uh, in terms of what that incidence response protocol and, and, and transparency around an incident looks like. Uh, but that really takes us to how do we prevent these incidents from actually becoming an event, right? And you had also touched upon how, you know, um, OT, um, the legacy of OT and, and how OT need, needs to not, you know, eh, ensuring that, you know, OT systems are not connected to the network, right? So let's, I would love to move forward. We want our sensors to be digitized. We want to leverage as much as we can, innovation and technology in terms of how we run our IoT, OT and IT, um, but that takes a very different approach to how we design, uh, how we look at network security going forward. Um, and and you know, I wanted to move on to kind of really talking about zero trust security as kind of the, the sanction adopted model by most of, of, of the community. Um, and, and it has been endorsed by the, the Biden administration, right? With the EO really focusing on zero trust and CISA being given this kind of you know, mandate to really look at a revised uh, zero trust security model. Um, and and then we see the, the US government clearly backing this approach. And then we see also you know, other governments around the world, Australia, you know, New Zealand, Singapore, Germany, all of them, you know, also following suit. You know, kind of everybody's crawling around zero trust as a framework. It's not a standard as an approach um, that we can all kind of, you know, stand behind. Um, you know, specifically around securing critical infrastructure. So um, let's let's kind of, you know, David, what, what, you know, both of you actually, Chris, you or David, either one of you can go first. What what are you know? Uh, what do you think uh, of? You know, what are your thoughts around the zero trust? Um, Security model that obviously the administration is is, is uh, endorsing, and you know what work you know have either of your organizations done around this, um, today.
3: Yeah, uh, Dave, you want me to go first on the kind of federal ones. So you know, I, I kind of like we said there, showed that the administration is endorsing. You know, that was a decision that we, we kind of made in the first couple of months of the administration because there's a lot of confusion around the the term. Right? And I think you sort of heard both both perspectives of like, let's move away from this or like like let's kind of lean into it. And leaning into it meant defining it, and that's what we did. Um, because in the end of the day, you know, you can say it, it means too many things. you can say it's a buzzword. it's also right. It's also like sort of the, when you look into the, the principles of it, the maturity models that have been developed by NSA and CIsa and NIST's guidance, like this is practicing good security. Right? And it's building off of you know, what we've learned over the years. And it is what will reduce drastically the uh, like pure implementation of zero-trust architecture and principles, will drastically reduce down attacks. It won't stop them, but it will reduce the noise, hopefully, to a manageable level, which is really the goal at the end of the day. And you know I think like what we did is we put out a, a policy memo strategy for federal government that said, hey, look, we're going to use a maturity model. We're going to say these are the pillars these are the actions and the pillars that are going to get you moving on the train know on the road there were things that we knew some people had started most most had not uh different phases of maturity but but they all needed we all need to do them right like and you know look at identity like just things like moving towards consolidated single sign-on and getting phishing resistant mfa in place There's just kind of like going through that 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 painful culture change consolidation in a large federated enterprise right of of getting those things right and 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 they've also just forced movements momentum good conversations around so they've, they've they've helped with budgeting priorities um just we can we can map now tooling service plays um even hiring of key positions creating a pmo to run it All that can be mapped and you can get a number over like how much you're spending on your priority, which is really helpful when you're working with your budget colleagues who kind of need to know they're dealing with, you know, a thousand programs. It's like, so so you're saying zero trust means X dollars. Great. Right. Like, and you you can distill it to that with all the data and verification model below up and down. But my team can do that. And I can just say like, yes, like we have all that. We can show you it's here trust us, this is the number that we need. Can't get it all this year, fine, let's do half here, half there, right? And you, you put your, you're get the right trade space of discussion around how to get these things funded and, and, and moving because that's just, you know, without the money, without the people, it's just a good idea, you know? And so uh, we've been focused on like kind of all those key enabling pillars as we've been modernizing and throwing out now. Thanks, so,
1: let
4: me build on that, Chris. Uh, well said, that's exactly... Uh, Where most organizations are, uh, decades, decades of cyber defenses with a very implicit culture, and zero trust is simply saying uh, we can't trust everyone to, to have everything. Um, I I equate it. You know, we we've been living in zero trust for so long and people don't know it. When you have a bank account with Chase Bank, do you think they let you in and talk to? I mean, access all accounts? They only allow you to access your account. The same thing would apply for a business. I'm going to give you credentials, I'm going to give you an ID, a password, and you're going to access that application, only that application, because that's what your job is for. So what why why is um, organizations resisting this, this transformation, if you will? And, and I think it's it starts from the bottom up that many organizations have trained their people to support that particular product, and that person doesn't is, is a threat to their career and to their job and their livelihood if they have to learn a different product. And in some cases, they're speaking to the leadership. They don't wanna change. So whether the change is is being instilled from the bottom or whether from the top, uh, some organizations are paralyzed when they hear zero trust because they really don't understand it. And if they could just simplify and say, today's world, today's defense is too liberal, if you will. It needs to be tightened up and it needs to be more more controlled. And to the extent that you can segment access, if you can authorize only certain people to access the application needed, you're gonna be miles ahead than you were before. So if we can look at Zero Trust as an investment, as an inflection point, as a pivot to be able to move, and then the next question is, where do I start? And, and NISC's uh, document, the maturity model and the pillars are a great place to say, this is where I'm at. I'm at the second level and I need to go a couple more levels higher over time, not by tomorrow, but over time, you build a roadmap, you establish priorities with funding and with resources, at least you know you're moving in the right direction and you're not paralyzing, you're not doing anything. So I think that's, that gives the, the, the private sector confidence when the public sector, that the federal government, is making inroads. And I, I, Chris, I think you would agree, you're not where you need to be yet, but at least you're starting in that direction. The presidential order on May 12th, 2021, 14028 advocating that zero trust direction, along with many other things for cyber defense, was a stake in the ground and agencies are on the clock and they have to be moving in that direction. Private sector should be watching every single step because that's where they all need to be going. It doesn't do any good. If if you just think about solar winds and the education we got in supply chain, it doesn't do any good for you to be the best when upstream and downstream is is riddled with a, a lot of vulnerabilities. So the entire supply chain, your success is depending on other organizations upstream and other organizations downstream are depending on your success. This is a collaborative effort that has to be done simultaneously across the board. Let's just say the federal government aced this and got it right. And the private sector didn't do anything. So, you know, that's it, not gonna work. We, we all need to be doing this together and we all need to be traveling at the same rate of speed with the same understanding that this is where I'm at and this is where I need to be.
3: Yeah, give you might have just had two quick points for, for, but I couldn't agree more, you know, and it is, you know, while you have to have funding and personnel and procurement vehicles that work, right? You have to have that, right? As enabling functions. You also have to have leadership for the culture change. And you got to keep this thing at the right level. And if you don't, all those other things will will be the stuff that sort of beats you uh, as David's laying out. And and that's why we've been managing these transitions that the sort of deputy secretary COO level, I mean, sure, the CIOs are lead, but they need to be empowered and enabled across the mission and the business side um, when those hard changes come up and like when there's resistant forces. And, and you know, we just, we've seen it time and again, but we're using data visualization, you know, you know d- d- data is key in this, where you can just kind of show everybody like, here's, what, here's where you're at, you can scorecard people, measure them against each other. And, you know, you can use culture to your advantage as well.
4: No, absolutely. Let me me move on on what Chris said. Change leadership. Everybody talks about change management. Okay, we got that. We got books on that. We got YouTube videos on it. Change leadership is not being given the proper due. Change leadership. The evangelizer, the advocate, the person that stands up and says, this is where we're going and this is the pace in which we're going to go. Jen Easterly, the director of CISA, is an example of that. After you believe in change leadership, the word that comes to mind after that is continuity. Who's gonna come in behind Jen? Who's gonna be the leader after that? And when these political winds change and the leadership changes at the federal and the state level, the next president, are they gonna have the same commitment to cybersecurity investments and and priorities? Well, I hope so. And I hope maybe they, they would even be greater, but continuity, can take the breath out of any any initiative that's there when there's a change in leadership and, and a change in direction. Change leadership and continuity of that leadership.
2: Let's unpack that a little bit. I mean there's change leadership and then there's career security, right? Um, and you had touched upon that before. And you know it's change leadership, I think, and you know, from a from an advocacy visionary perspective is absolutely necessary when you when 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 you're looking at revolutions like we're looking at, right? We, um, we're we're going through technology revolutions that are you know tremendous in our lifetime, right? I mean, we we haven't even touched on GPT yet and what that means, but you know th- th- these are these are massive you know waves and shifts. Uh, but then you also have the everyday you know technologist or the operator in, in in their roles who has spent the 25, 30 years being trained on something. Um, you know, and they've spent the majority of their career buying technology or equipment and, 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 and uh, that they're very comfortable with this given communities, you know, job security, telling them that that is no longer, you know, having them make that pivot is is a massive undertaking, right? So cultural change, as, as uh, Chris, you put it, um, I think it, it weighs as heavily as, 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 you know, a technology change, um, a process change. I don't know if you were gonna comment, um, Chris,
3: on that. Well, you, you, you know, it is it is true, it has been true. I think the, the thing that we as leaders are gonna to have to grapple with is generative AI and the advances that are coming there to disrupt cost models and basically every, not just business, but organization, government organizations, nonprofits, it doesn't matter. We all have cost models. These are all about to be disrupted by this technology as it goes past the chat use cases. And I, you know, like the thing is, is like we're going to have to figure out how to lead through it. You know, there's, there's no more optionality. The pace is going to just go like skyrocket and people are going to have to learn how to use that technology to do their job successfully. And I, and I, and, you know, and I, and I, I think my what I'm saying is is we've always had this problem. I think it's about to get worse, oh. and as far as a as a, something that needs to be addressed. If it's if you know, if 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 it's if it isn't taken head on, is kind of what I'm saying. It's going to get worse, you know. But I think there's a ton of opportunity to, to to bring people along with it. You know, I think there's lots of positive opportunity to make people's jobs and lives easier. And I've heard some folks like. Laura Nossenberger, she, she was recently left the, the the CIO at Air Force. She did such a fantastic job of like talking positively about zero trust changes and and just doing it the right way. I'm mean, I'm I i do not think I'm there yet, but like I but I really respect the way that she talks about it because it's just it's not intimidating. It's just sort of helpful and it's bringing people into the fold of like wanting right like wanting to engage with it. And I think that's right. I think it's just we're all going to have to kind of learn how to do that a bit better. And I like I include myself in that.
2: I, I think it you know it, it warms my heart to hear you say that because it's one of the things here at, at Zscale as a company, and especially my 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 organization um, that we've really focused on is you know, forget the sales, forget the marketing, forget all that. How do we get you talking to your peers? How do we have more of these revolutionaries as we call them out in the forefront talking about how they have embraced? Um, IT transformation, how they've embraced secure transformation, how they've embraced and you know, pioneered some of these zero trust journeys in their different sectors, different verticals, you know, in different roles and how they've seen positive outcomes, right? Really stories from the trenches, creating these communities and these exchanges where we can talk about these things. So we, you know, we have a hundred, a 1, thousand names of people. So people aren't going to be so afraid to stick their neck out and go, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go do this. Because you know it's it's a road less traveled, but people have done it. There are success stories, and I can learn from that. And I potentially don't have to repeat some of those mistakes that they have undergone. And you know, and I know there's a lot of cross agency, you know, communications that have to be privy, right? Like they're then you know, they're confidential, but there there is enough to be able for us to be able to create sort of best practices in the industry and and share them. Um, so that goes to like my next quick topic around private and public sector collaboration. and David, you touched upon that quite a bit by saying, look, we all have to coexist um, and we can't push the onus back on the private sector and just say, okay, private sector, you're not responsible for everything you build and sell us. If something happens, um, then you're on you know you're on the hook. It's a joint responsibility model, right? um in terms of what we build and and transfer to the public sector and then how the public sector also ingests and operationalizes some of this. So it is or it's a supply chain, we're an ecosystem that has to coexist and we have to build for some of these corner cases. Uh, but let's I'd love to understand it. I think specifically around you know um partnerships like the JCDC, uh right. Uh, can we talk a little bit about how that can play a role in you know enhancing our critical infrastructure cybersecurity. Um, David, you and then
4: Potentially, uh, Chris as well. Yeah, I was uh, again uh, complimenting uh, Jen Esterley when she created a Joint Cyber Defense collabor- uh, Collaborative, and uh, all all in the intent of sharing information across public and private sectors. Uh, I I believe it's in it's in its early phases of, of success, but they've got miles to go to become interdependent on the information that they're uh, that they have, and I and I'm I'm gonna guess they probably have 10% of what they really need. I don't think they're really sharing as well as they should be. And there's always uh, reservations in how much they can share based on lawyers, based on stock price, based on uh, whatever factors uh, inhibit them from sharing. But it's a place to start. She named the organization. She's got the members of the organization. And I think there's a matter of trust that has to be established in the relationships of the value that comes from that kind of an organization. Outside of the JCDC, there's also a lot of opportunities. I'm going a call this afternoon with MSISAC, again, sharing with them the whole of state strategies, trying to make sure that the, the federal grant, infrastructure grant funds are being used wisely. Uh, I'm, I'm participating with four states right now, Wisconsin, Virginia, uh, Maryland, and Delaware. I, I do a cross-pollination. I sit on one call and, I, and inform the others. So I'm doing the best I can to help them understand the value and importance of whole of state. When I seriously consider local government our greatest vulnerability, federal and state are funded to be able to protect themselves. Local government uh, for decades of their independence don't see collaboration as a value. So there's a, a significant culture hurdle that we have to overcome in being able to have them understand this too can happen to you you would think after Atlanta, Baltimore, and even what's going on today in Dallas, they would understand that cities are targets. Cities can be crippled and and can be non-functional in these attacks. So I'm hoping that uh, some of these real-life stories and examples give credibility to the importance of information sharing. Yeah, I
3: mean, I guess a quick double tap on all of that. Yeah, I think that there's been efforts for years, you know, I used to, I worked at Homeland for about six years and four of those were in what's now called CISA. So time we had end kick, but JCDC has changed the information sharing game. Um, and look, you know, it'll need to continue to be minded and evolve and uh, back to David's really important point, continuity, you know, it's, it's working today, but will it work five years from now? We need to make sure it does, yes. you know, and, and, but it is working today. You know, it's it's the people are sharing information pretty fast there between public private channels, uh, and it's real information. And you, you know, I you you look at what we're also doing on the federal side, just in bringing the signal together there. I think we want to we have more authorities, and and there's just sort of it's just a different model than what we've got at JCDC. I mean, we actually have. CISA is, is, is allowed to get the direct telemetry off of devices, you know, from federal agencies. Okay, well, we don't, you know, we're not quite that that level of, like, being enabled to share at a, at a fast or near real-time way. And then, you know, what we are able to do in the federal government is take that signal of one agency and then share it back for all. There's really preventing us from using federal government information to protect all federal agencies. Right? There's this barriers in, in the way, um, I think, to be successful and we're, we're creating models of, like, Getting better and better and better at having CISA act as kind of the central government backstop MSSP that's just there to serve and provide and be eyes and ears for all. And they are getting better and better and better at that, thank goodness. How do you how do you do as much of that as you possibly can? Is like sort of the JCPC like, like question. Um, and I think, you know, unfortunately, a lot of that's still voluntary. Getting back to do we need a little bit more of like, we need to know in certain sectors and areas um and we've also had moments in time where we've we've seen just kind of what it can be, and we look at the the invasion of you know Ukraine, um, the lead up to and the months generally right after uh, the the level of transparent sharing, you know, real kind of real real sharing. Uh, you know, I, I personally had I don't think I'd seen in that scale ever, right and. And you know, how do you bottle lightning is always like the hard question um, because it's landing for a reason, you know. But but like, but you certainly can learn like all the things, the characteristics of what worked well, and then you try to find ways in a steady state to replicate. Um, but I but you know I'm I'm positive overall because we we are in a better place than we were a decade ago. And there's just no question, and it, and it's just not enough to be. To 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 say that we've taken this risk and it's at a manageable level. All right, that is what we're driving for. And I, you know, just like other major challenges we have faced as nations over the past however many years we've been around. You know, I should probably know that, but you know, I, I've studied other things. I, I like, but 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 we are we need to take this risk and, and, and manage it. And we are working on it, and we're getting there. But but the JCDC and the public private collaboration, because of the distributed nature of ownership, is going to be crucial.
2: Uh, Thank you for really unpacking that, gentlemen, super helpful. We've been going for 50 minutes, 51 minutes. I think we can talk for another five hours. Uh, I I wanted to take a question from um, our audience. So this question specifically is from Maritalk. Um, Once responses come in for uh, that RFI on cybersecurity regulatory harmonization, what are the next steps in that process to create a framework for cyber regulatory harmonization? And then any insights on what that framework will look like?
3: Wow, those are the right questions, I think is all I can say in that right now. Um, I mean, what we're doing right now, you know, it's it's, it's a great question. And what we're doing right now is we're really ensuring we're well positioned to take all that feedback, take, you know, unstructured data, get it structured, analyze it, make sure that we're, Pooling and it, putting it in the right place, um, give, doing follow up right engagements. You can all anticipate to see, but I but I think exactly like how that framework you know comes together. I, I'm going to have to defer to my colleagues who are leading that effort, but also I think that's like a little bit of a work in progress at the moment. But but it's all it's all being strategized and worked through right now while we have this moment in time of getting the RFI um, you know results.
4: Most most regulations. Uh... The initial reaction might be one of, uh, of paralysis but we should be designing regulations that are enabling enabling and risk management uh, you know just woven with risk management so that they believe the regulation is good for them as opposed to being a paralyzing event for their business so uh, there's a lot of uh, critical design that needs to go around those regulations understanding the the constituents uh, uh, benefit and the value this 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 regulation is going to help you be stronger, help you defend against a a catastrophe that uh, may come your way. So I think the adoption rate would be a lot uh, better and a lot more uh, simpler if it was an enabling regulation as opposed to one that I'm gonna shut you down and I'm gonna gonna paralyze you and make it very difficult for you to operate. Well,
2: thank you. So much for your time today. Um, before we wrap up, I was gonna ask if I, you know, both of you, Chris, will start with you. Any parting thoughts for you know everybody listening in on on this topic? You know, in your role, any advice you would give to your peers? Um, or maybe we we could yeah, wrap.
3: Yeah. Up. Look. Um. Well, one thing I like to say: is be kind yourself if you're in this field because it's a marathon and it's tough to not sort of have it be a sprint to sprint. Um, and so, you know, mind your mind your health truly and and stay engaged in this field because we need your expertise. You know, there's a lot of new entrants and they need mentorship. And you know, as I had an old boss like to say, you know, prevent Christopher Columbus moments of sort of thinking you've just discovered something, but you're discovering it. It's been discovered. It's trodden territory. You want to not have that happen. You want to build off of what's been coming before you so that we keep making progress at pace. So you know, I mean, I, I I think it's just really important to kind of focus on that. Like, stay with this, mentor others, is a really important uh, lesson through this. And the second thing that I would say is, I look, I get it. If you're in a business, you know, you've got your priorities. you got lots of stressors. You're focused on things. Some of this stuff doesn't make sense to you. Why do I need to report what's happening to me to this federal government? What are they going to do for me? What are they going to give me back what information? gonna help make better strategic business decisions for me. I'm on it. I'm doing my job. I've got this. You know, I don't get it. And what I'd say to that is, you know, that's to me, that's 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 not thinking about the world which we live in. It's not thinking about the fact that that central point needs this context so that it can do its job, which we've always been doing. Always been the job of governments to protect its citizens, and its residents, and. We haven't had something this important before that has such distributed ownership and involvement. Okay, there's no no corollary. And the reality of what we're saying to you is is we need your help. And maybe it's not about you today, it's about us, all of us. And I just really think people gotta, when they're giving that feedback or having those reactions, please just stop and think about it a little bit of a different way. And we would not be asking for this if we didn't think we really
2: needed it. Thank you, Chris, for that. I appreciate
4: it. Well, uh, the leadership uh, required for a zero trust transformation, I'll, I'll leave you with that. Uh, it's a pivot point. It's something that um, eventually you're not gonna have a choice and eventually you're gonna have to adopt this. Uh, the, the old way of doing business just isn't gonna get it anymore. So uh, the change leadership topic that we talked about earlier, uh the continuity of that leadership and the belief in in the direction is is very very much needed Uh, i look at myself i was at the state for nearly eight years and uh i didn't think i was going to stay that long maybe two three four years uh and in my latter years i made it very important that you weren't doing it for me you were doing it for the mission and when i leave you're going to continue to do it regardless of who the CIO or the governor was going to be, because you believe in the importance of the mission. This needs to be the label of zero trust transformation. You're doing it in the spirit of zero trust, making sure it's explicitly authorizing and authenticating individuals that are going to have access to some very important assets. So just, just, uh, just remember the change leadership that's going to be required for a zero trust transformation and making sure everyone understands the message equally as well, regardless of who the leader is at that point in time.
2: Thank you, David. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. I also wanted to thank our audience. I mean, we've really you know, touched upon so many facets of this very, very important topic. Um, you know, Thank you for a lot of the work that you and your organizations have been doing and continue to do. And, and I think we all agree we have much to do. Um, and you know, this is a you know collaborative effort between the public and the private sector. Um, it impacts our our safety, right, and 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 our viability as as a nation and as citizens um, of of this country. And um, so, you know, it's great work, good work. Thank you so much. And uh, from all of us here at Zscaler, we want to tell you all to. Stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, we look forward to having um, another conversation with you again soon.
3: Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, David.
2: Thanks so much. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening to the CIO Evolution. Check back with your podcast provider regularly for more episodes. You can find more episodes along with other podcasts on the CXO Revolutionaries website at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Statements by Zscaler podcasters and guests are informational only and should never be construed as legal advice. You should consult your legal advisor on matters related to you or your business. Zscaler makes no warranties, express, implied, or statutory as to the content of this podcast, and it is provided as is. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of the recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Copyright 2021.